You're listening to the Grace Point Northwest podcast. We hope that you will be encouraged and built up in your relationship with Jesus as you hear the preaching and teaching of God's Word. If Grace Point Northwest is not your home church, it is our heart that this podcast will be supplemental and not a substitute to you belonging to a local church in your community. If we can help you get connected to a church in your community, please let us know. And we hope you enjoy this message from our Sunday gathering. All right. Hey, welcome again. My name is Travis. I'm one of the pastors here. I totally forgot. How do you sign up for that event, right? Well, here's what, if you want to help out at the Bluegrass Festival, all you got to do is go to our website, go to For the Community and just sign up there. Or after the gathering, you can head right out to the Connect Here table and you can sign up then. So if you like bluegrass music and you like counting numbers, man, come help us. It's going to be awesome. Okay. Sound good? Cool. Well, if you got a Bible, go ahead and open up to John chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like one, feel free as you head out today, swing by the New Here table. We have free Bibles both in English and in Spanish. Also, it's important for you to know here at Grace Point, we exist within a collective of churches here in the Las Vegas Valley. We have two independent churches, one here and one in North Las Vegas, and together we live out a mission of making disciples that live in community for the community. And so we're glad you're here this morning. We're going to continue through the Gospel of John. We've called this series the Book of John that you may believe because that's John's entire point. He doesn't want you and me to guess as we read this book what his point is, and he wants us to believe in Jesus. You see, John tells us that he wants all of us to have life and believe in Jesus' name. And the question that I think John has for you and me this morning is this, do you come to Jesus for him or for yourself? Do you come to Jesus because of who he is or because you want something from him? Many of us, if we're honest, we've been to a party that was for someone, but then someone at that party tried to make the party all about them. We see this often at little kids' birthday parties. You got one sibling who's a bit older, and we're throwing a celebration for him, but you got a younger sibling that does not understand why they don't get presents. They don't get cake, and they start to scream, and they start to cry, and they're like, why aren't you singing to me? And what sometimes parents tend to do is they tend to give that child a gift to appease that child, but here's the problem. The party is not about them, Right? Who in here has ever been to a wedding in which the wedding is supposed to be all about the bride and groom? Yet the groomsman or the bridesmaid gets up to give their speech, and instead of honoring the couple and focusing the attention on the couple, what do they do? They make a fool of themselves, and they focus all the attention on them. Years later, as the people think back to that wedding, they don't think about that couple. They think about that bridesmaid or that groomsman or that best man who made it all about them. You see, what they fail to understand is the party is not about them. And the question John has for us today is, do we treat Jesus in a similar manner? We're going to see that many people are at a party for Jesus. Some are there for him while the others are there simply for themselves. And the question is, which are you? So look with me in John chapter 11, verse 55. Here's what we read. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisee had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. These verses tell us that Jesus is heading into the final stage or or week of his life and ministry. And it's time for the Passover. And this is the third Passover in the book of John, but it's the final Passover of Jesus's earthly life. 
Now, the Passover was a festival that was celebrated by Jews all over the world. They would travel into Jerusalem to the temple, and they would celebrate God's provision of what he did for their ancestors back in the Exodus. Because if you don't remember, in the Exodus, they were 400 years in captivity and slavery to Egypt. They cried out to God, and what did God do? He miraculously freed his people through 10 plagues, with the final plague being what? The death of the firstborn son in all the land. Now, in the book of Exodus, God had provided the Israelites with specific instructions on how they could be spared of that plague. He told each household to do what? To take a perfect one-year-old unblemished lamb, to kill it, and to place the blood on the doorpost of their house. And when death came by, seeing that blood, what it would do is what? Pass over that house, sparing that child. Each year, men would come into Jerusalem, taking with them lambs to sacrifice, and it was normal for people to head up there early to purify themselves. They would go up there and purify themselves because they were unclean, for, because they, they were unclean, they couldn't take the Passover. And so what they would do is participate in ceremonial washings and things like that. But notice what the text says. It says, those who went up to purify themselves were what? Who were they looking for? Jesus. They wanted to find Jesus. Why is that? Because at this point in the Gospel of John, Jesus is an outlaw. The Pharisees and the religious leaders are looking for him, and they put out specific orders. If you see him, you let us know, because what do they want to do? They want to arrest him. And so the people are looking for him, right? Why are they looking for Jesus? They're looking to get him in trouble. Some of them might be looking for him to gain power or authority or favor with the Pharisees. Other people might just be looking for him because they want to get a good show. I'm sure I'm not the only one growing up who liked to watch cops, right? Some of you in here are like, bad boys, bad boys, what you going to do, right? It's a show. And I imagine people around there going and just intense with anticipation, what is possibly going to go down? However, I think you and I could be missing the point that John is trying to make here. One theologian says it like this. He says, and this should be up on the screen, it should say this. There is probably significance in the fact that he, that's John, joins the detail that many went up to Jerusalem to purify themselves with the detail that what? They were looking for Jesus. What Jesus will do at this Passover purifies those who seek him. I can't help but to think that many of us are seeking to purify ourselves, trying to clean ourselves up for God. We believe that Jesus will save us after all that we do. Some of us in here, we have heard or believed that if we deny ourselves of all ungodliness, then and then alone, will God love us? You see, many of us tend to mistakenly believe that God helps those who help themselves. We think the Bible says, because the world loved God, God therefore loved the world, or because we love God, therefore God loved us. Yet those are all lies. None of those are in the Bible. And I fear that when we buy into these lies, many of us tend to do the Christian things, if you will, trying to earn that which Jesus gives. We come to church, we give, we serve, we sing, we pray, trying to get from Jesus rather than to give to Jesus. You see, the reason we come to church, the reason we give, the reason we serve, the reason we go out and listen to bluegrass music and count heads on March 21st is not to gain any favor with Jesus, but rather those are gifts we give to Jesus because of what? Jesus first loved us. Jesus first came for us. Jesus first gave to us. And so when we try to pure ourselves by these things, trying to clean ourselves up for God, what we are doing is not cleaning ourselves up. We're actually taking ourselves farther away. 
Because Jesus has come to purify those who need to be purified, to clean those who have no ability whatsoever to clean themselves up. And so what does Jesus do in light of these religious leaders looking for him? What would you do? I don't know about you, but if I found out a bunch of people were looking for me, I'd probably hide or jump town. But what Jesus does is he goes to a party, and I think it's kind of fun, so check it out. Verse 1, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, when Lazarus, uh, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Now, you can't miss the courage of Lazarus and Martha in this text. They're throwing a party for Jesus, right? Sure. But remember, what is Jesus in this text? He's an outlaw. He's a fugitive. He's a wanted man. In Mark chapter 2, we find out that Jesus is actually at the house of Simon the leper. And what is happening in this house is both Simon the leper and Lazarus are, throwing a, are giving a thank you party to Jesus. Why? Because they're thanking Jesus, Simon the leper who had leprosy. What did Jesus do? He healed him, right? And what happened to Lazarus? He was dead, and Jesus brought him back to life. And so they're just throwing a big, huge party just to say, thank you, Jesus. But we also see that not only is Lazarus there, but there's another person there. And her name is Martha, and what is she doing? She is serving and giving to Jesus through her work. And that's extremely important, because this isn't the first time in the Gospels, the biographies of Jesus, that we read about Martha and Jesus at a dinner party. In Luke chapter 10, we read of another story, another time in which Martha and Jesus were there. And listen to what happens here. It should be up on the side, of the side screens. It says, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone. I am so thankful my house isn't the only one that goes down in. Right? How many times? It's not my turn to pick up the dog poop. You didn't see what he did. Anyway, I got distracted, sorry. Tell her then to help me. I heard that too, okay? But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. You see, before this dinner in Bethany, Luke tells us that Jesus is at another dinner in which Martha served. And what is her attitude at that dinner? It's all about her. It's all about her. She was distracted and upset that her sister Mary wasn't what? Helping out. And obviously, Martha didn't understand Jesus' words as saying that her work was bad. Because here we are at another party. And what is Martha doing? She's serving. She's working. She's helping out. And in a moment, we're going to see that Mary, just like she did in Luke 10, is going to go away to Jesus' feet. And not once are we going to hear Martha here start to complain. Why is that? It's because her focus has changed. Apparently, Martha didn't understand the words, Mary chosen what is better, is Jesus saying that her work and her service and, and her help is insignificant. Rather, what Jesus did and what Jesus is doing is infusing her work with a new focus. Kent Hughes is a, a biblical author, and here's what he says. She understood that Jesus was saying that her harried, depressed, unhappy attitude was separating her from him. She knew that service can be worship if it is done with the right attitude. 
The Apostle Paul is immensely helpful for us here. In Colossians 3.23, he writes this, Whatever you do, work heartedly for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. I can't help but think that many of us come in here thinking Sunday is for worship, but Monday is for work. However, that is a false dichotomy. Why? Because it is all worship. Monday is just as important as Sunday, and Sunday is just as important as Monday. Both are opportunities to worship. And the question you got to ask yourself is this, why do you work? Why do you go into the office or go out to the field? Why do you do what you do to earn money? Is it to please your boss? Is it to make a buck? Is it to provide for your family or climb the corporate ladder? For some of us in here, is it for living for the weekend? trying to get a bigger house or a bigger vacation. What Paul and Jesus are saying is that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, those pursuits aren't necessarily bad, but they are not to be primary in our lives. Why? Because Christian work is all about Jesus. It's about him. You see, even the most mundane moments are an opportunity to worship Jesus, for Paul uses what word in Colossians 3.23? Whatever. Whatever. That means... Everything and anything you do is to be a gift and an act of worship to Jesus. So what that practically means is just this. Change that diaper for the glory of God. That's work, amen? Change that diaper for the glory of God. Serve your family for the glory of God. Deliver that package for the glory of God. Make that product, take that test, kick that ball, run that business for Jesus and do it with joy. One of the things that I love is uh, i got a home office where I'll oftentimes study. And it's not uncommon for me to be working on my message as my kids are coming home. And my daughters, they'll come into the house and they'll come in with their art projects. And they'll run up right up to me at my desk and they'll say, Dad, 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 look what I made for you. they got a smile on their face. They're full of joy. Because why? They made that for me because they love me. And they'll show me all the lines and where they stayed in the lines and all that stuff. Like, one of my daughters is writing a comic book about this guy named Fred. I have no idea what it's about, but she loves it. And she's written it, like, giving me these things, like, hey, and I stack these in a file because I love them, because they make them with joy. Now, how much joy would I have if my children walked in the house and said, hey, Dad, I made you an art project, crumbled it up, and just fastballed it right to my head? I'd kind of go, well, that wasn't very nice. I probably even wouldn't want the project, right? That's what's going on here. You see, when it comes to your work, maybe your focus shouldn't be on the paycheck. Maybe it shouldn't be on the boss. Maybe it shouldn't even be on what it is that you do. You see, everything we do is to be done for Jesus. Why? Because it's all about him. And that radically changed Martha. She offers glad service to Jesus because she knew that the party she was at wasn't about her, but it was about who? Jesus. It was always about Jesus. So what about her sister Mary? What does she do? Listen to verse 3. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So Mary goes back to the feet of Jesus, but this time she doesn't go back to his feet to listen, but to give. John tells us she takes a very expensive ointment probably worth about a year's wages, she breaks it open and she pours it on Jesus' feet. Why? 
Well, some commentators say that the reason she did that is because in that society, bathing was optional and not very frequent. And so just like a middle school camp, when they just spray a bunch of Axe on themselves instead of showering, (laughs) that what she did, she came in and took a bunch of ointment and just put it on try to increase the fragrance of the room. However, I think more of what she's doing is she's offering a burial spice because this is known to be a burial spice. And without her knowing it, we'll see in a bit, what is she doing? She's preparing Jesus to die. That's what she's doing. But notice where she puts it. She puts it on Jesus' feet. And I don't know about you, but I don't really like feet. I think they're gross. I like touch my wife's feet, but that's about it, okay? That's just it. And when you think about the feet in this culture, they had to be nasty. Because they weren't walking around in closed-toed shoes, but they had open sandals, right? Open-toed sandals. Their roads of transportation were dirt. Animals were the main source of transportation. We burn gas, they drop stuff, right? And so you're walking through all that. But not only that, in this culture, the most menial and lowly position that you could ever have is touching and serving and washing feet. And it was so low that even slaves would try to find somebody else to do this. Yet Mary rushes into this room, she breaks open this ointment, she touches Jesus' feet, and then she uses her very hair to spread the ointment around. She is completely surrendered, completely vulnerable in her devotion to Jesus. Why? Well, Skip Ryan writes this. He said, Mary is giving up her rights before the Lord. There is nothing he cannot ask of her. Touching his feet becomes her pledge of unconditional service. You see, what Mary gives to Jesus is possibly her most treasured prized possession. At no point in this story do we even see Jesus request her to do this. She just rushes in, just full of love and devotion to Jesus, breaks the jar open, rubs it on his feet, regardless of how much it might cost her personally. Why? Because she loves Jesus and she knows the party is about him. And this challenges us in our lives too. What is your most treasured possession and are you willing or unwilling to pour it out for Jesus? Could it be your job? Many of us, our most treasured possession is our vocation. But what if Jesus saves you and he calls you to lay that job down so that you can enter into full-time Christian service and preach the gospel? I know of men and women who gave up their jobs, joyfully gave up their jobs, started churches in northern Nevada, Denver, and Salt Lake City. Why? Because Jesus called them to do it. But Jesus doesn't always call us to give up our jobs and do that, but rather, what does Jesus do? Just like for Martha, repurposes our jobs to put the focus on him and the good of other people? And could it be possible that in your vocation, what Jesus is calling you to do is to repurpose it for his glory and the joy of others? For as many people I know who left their jobs to go start churches or go on the mission field, I can tell you story after story of men who know how to work with their hands and fix cars who started offering free car washes to single moms once a month. I can tell you story after story of bakers And people who are good at making stuff, supplying the church with goods and services so that they can distribute it out in the community. Not all of us need to be preaching the gospel. But some of us need to realize preaching the gospel is important, but so is fixing the car. Because how in the world am I going to get here? Because I don't know anything about fixing a car. Your job is just as important. There is no such thing as a religious and secular divide. It's false. We do all of our vacations for his glory and the joy of others. But could it be possible 
that Jesus is calling you to sacrifice a relationship, to lay down that relationship for his glory and your joy. And when I lived in another state, I will never forget going into the living room of my friend's house and listening to Dave talk about if he came to faith in Jesus, he knew the cost. He was going to lose his family, his job, and his vocation, and his community. And my wife and I sat there and listened to him through both joy as well as tears talk about the pain of that, but how Jesus was still good. You see, many of us, we're willing to do that. However, for every one of us that's willing to do this, I can't help but think there's so many of us who are unwilling to do that. Unwilling to send our kids on the mission field because it might not fulfill our purpose, our desire for their life. Not willing to do those things. And the question is, are you willing Whatever Jesus lays before you, are you willing to pour it out in devotion and love to him? You see, Mary, that's exactly what she did. She poured it out, and it cost her socially, but she knew Jesus was worth it. Why? She knew the party wasn't, was about him. Now, everybody at this party, they aren't there for Jesus. There are some who are at this party that are like the young child, right, or the, the bad friend at the wedding. They're trying to make it all about them. And so listen to what happens in verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, One of the disciples, he was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now Judas takes in what's happening. He smells the fragrance, the ointment, and he immediately begins to chastise Jesus. And how rude is he? He's doing this at Jesus' own party. He looks at Jesus and he accuses him, if you will. He says, Don't you care about the poor? I mean, think about it, Jesus. This is worth an entire year's worth like, of work, like an entire yearly wage. Imagine how much we could do for the poor if we just sell this. How selfish are you, Jesus? She's wasting it on your feet. But John tells us the real motive of Judas. Listen to verse 6. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used it to help himself to put to what was put in it. See, just like the great philosopher Snoop Dogg, Judas had his mind on his money and his money on his mind, right? And that's what's going on here. I don't know if he was rolling down the street doing the other stuff, but I will tell you this. He had his mind on his money and his money on his mind. And unlike Mary and Martha, Judas thinks this party is about who? Himself, right? Some of you guys are like, I'm not with you anymore. I'm so distracted. Just hang with me, okay? I don't know why I put that in there. I don't know why. I wasn't listening to Snoop as I was writing this. I don't know why. But think about it. Mary and Martha know the party is about Jesus. Judas thinks the party is about himself. And John tells us he was in charge of the money bag. And what would Judas do with the money bag? He would take some for himself. And what he sees being spilled out on Jesus' feet is a big payout. So just like a little kid at a sibling's party, he starts to throw a fit. He starts to say, wait a second, Jesus. I'm going to masquerade around like I care about the poor. But he's sitting there looking like, why don't I get a present? Why don't I get to enjoy this? Why don't I get to spend this? And the thing that is so scary to me is that Judas was one of Jesus' disciples. Think about it. The man camped out with Jesus. He ate with Jesus. He spent three years watching Jesus do miracles And on the outside, Judas appeared to have it all together. However, on the inside, his heart wasn't for Jesus, but it was for what? Jesus' stuff. Unlike Mary and Martha, if a decision came down between Jesus or his stuff, Judas says stuff wins every time. 
One pastor by the name of A.W. Pink says this. He says, The example of Judas shows how near a man may come to Christ and yet be lost. You see, Judas wanted the kingdom without a king. He wanted Christianity without Christ. And let me ask you a question. If you got to heaven and you got everything you wanted and Jesus wasn't there, would you still want heaven? If you got to heaven and you had the steak, medium rare, it's phenomenal, right? The dog always listens, right? You get the, you know, the joy of activity and sports. You get endless amounts of it. Your family is there. But Jesus isn't, would you still want to be there? You see, if your answer is yes to that question, you tend to be thinking a lot more like Judas. And what is so sad is how many people run up to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'll follow you if you'll give me X, Y, and Z. And while I was sitting in the hospital room with my wife as she was going through her gallbladder surgery, I was watching a sermon from a pastor in which basically he said, Jesus wants you to follow him so he can give you all of the stuff he tells you to give up. He says, if you follow Jesus, you're going to have health, wealth, and popularity. And I remember studying this week, thinking back to that moment, going, I think Judas would really like that message. He'd be like, I'm down with that one. So how does Jesus respond to Judas? Listen to what he says in verse 7. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. I love what Jesus does here. He basically looks at Judas and he defends Mary. He says, leave her alone. Stop it. Quit talking to her. What is wrong with you, man? I mean, his response sounds a bit callous to the poor at first. Until you think back through the Gospels and you look at Jesus' ministry of the poor, he was anything but calloused. He was constantly serving the poor. And don't miss the big E on the eye chart. Jesus himself was what? Poor. He's not being callous to the poor at all. Rather, Jesus is just saying, Judas, if you really want to serve the poor like I have, then have at it. You have the rest of your life to serve the poor, and nothing Mary has done can stop you from that. However, you don't really love the poor at all. You're actually using the poor as a cover for your covetous heart. You don't love the poor. Rather, you love money. You see, Mary's heart is in the right place. Judas's heart is not. Mary loved Jesus. She knew the party was about him. And she knows he has the power over death. How do we know? Because what's the party celebrating? Jesus bringing her brother back to life. She saw it. Judas, however, saw all of that. And he loved what more than all of that? Money. And he thinks the party is all about himself and getting rich. Six days from this very point, Jesus is going to be laying in a grave. And there's going to be two people standing there. There are going to be those who are basically going to say, I know this doesn't end in death. I saw what he did to Lazarus. And then they're going to see him come back to life. And they're going to have unbelievable joy in their hearts. However, there are some who are standing there who are going to basically say the party just died. Because Jesus isn't fulfilling what they want. And I believe Jesus is saying, let her keep it. It can't possibly be talking about the fragrance. She poured it all out. But I think what he's saying is, let her keep that love, that devotion, that faith in me. Leave her alone, Judas, because your type of rhetoric squashes that type of life. So what happens at the party? Verses 9 through 11, we'll finish up. When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, They came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, 
whom he raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Man, poor guy. He just came back to life, right? (laughs) Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The religious leaders, what they do in light of the crowds flocking to Jesus and Lazarus, they come out with a plan to squash the evidence, to kill the evidence, if you will. They're like, hey, we need to take out Lazarus. Why? Because he's an emphatic declaration, a piece of evidence that what the party is about is valid. Jesus has the power over death. You see, Lazarus was a witness, not because he did anything for Jesus, but he was a witness because Jesus did what? Everything from him. It wasn't like he was in the grave going, help, help. He wasn't doing that. Jesus walked up, said, Lazarus, come out, and it happened. Jesus did a work in his life, brought him from death to life. And in the same way, like Lazarus, our lives should be a witness to the life of the party, Jesus. You see, the Apostle Paul is so helpful in telling us that who we are in the story is really Lazarus, who was dead and who is now alive. The Bible tells us in the book of Ephesians chapter 2, listen to what it says in Ephesians 2, 1, and you were what? Dead in your trespasses and your sins. Here's what you've got to understand. Sin isn't making a mistake. Sin isn't just messing up, making an oops. Sin doesn't make you bad. The Bible says that sin, what? It makes you dead. That's what it does. You and I were like Lazarus. We were dead spiritually in our sins. Walking dead, walking around. And what does Jesus come to do? He doesn't just come to make us good, moral, and right. He comes to make us alive. Look what Paul says in Ephesians 2 verse 5. It says this, When we were dead in our trespasses, When we were dead in our trespasses, Jesus, this is who he's talking about, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been what? Saved. For what purpose? For what reason? Verses 2 through, chapter 2, 8 through 10, look at it. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Dead people have no right to boast. Nobody in this room who's a Christian can say, I figured it out. I solved the problem. I figured out the Rubik's Cube. I know it all. Nobody can do that. Why? Because you and I, apart from Jesus, are what? We're dead. And what does God come and do? He gives us a gift. Not a gift we earn, not a gift we deserve. None of us were crying out for this, asking for this, but in his love and in his grace, he came to give you life, to make your dead heart beat again, like the song says on the Christian radio. Except it makes it beat again for Jesus and love for Jesus. That's what he has come to do. And look what it says in verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I think it was Martin Luther that said, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. Okay? God doesn't need you. You don't do these good works to earn his favor. You do these good works because you have his favor. And he's prepared this beforehand for you to walk in it. Why? Because the party is about him. We are not the life of the party, but Lazarus is. And we are to point to the life of the party, Jesus. And may it be said of us too that on account of Travis, many were believing in Jesus. On account of Joel, many were believing in Jesus. On account of John, many were believing in Jesus. On account of Jess, and I could go through the entire place, okay? May it be on account of us, many are believing in Jesus because they see the change Jesus has brought into our lives. 
You see, there ain't no party like a Jesus party because the Jesus party don't stop. And some of you are like, he lost me again. Got snooping that. But here's what I'll tell you. We're not to be like kids who are throwing a fit at a party. We're not to be like a bad groomsman or bridesmaid or best man who's given a speech. Our lives were created to reflect the glory of God and to constantly point to him because he is the life of the party. Do you know him? Are you there for him? Are you there for you? Let's pray.